podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Brilliant, brilliant Bayern. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and this week we once again turn our attention to Germany with the third and certainly not the last edition of Das Real Fußballcast. All the major talking points from the Bundesliga will be discussed within the next hour, while of course there's even more in the unfolding saga, which is otherwise known as Premier League Project Restart. Not only that, we're also embarking on the Trans Global Express. More on that later. More importantly though, we once again have a full house. That means leading the line this week around the captain's armband is Carl. So Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good, Dan. Start Starting to build that fitness up now, you know, training a little bit more, get, getting better each week and uh, getting closer to the beginning and getting back into it fully again. So looking forward to this one, mate. Yeah, we're getting a bit more sharper now. The intensity's there. And that means, of course, that your strike partner is also on the other side of the pond ready to supply the ammunition. That's Drew. Drew, how have you been in the past week? Oh, I'm doing well, Dan. Thanks. Obviously, it's been a crazy weekend here in the uh, good old US of A. But football-wise, the Premier League is coming back. I'm sure we're going to talk about it. So couldn't be happier as uh, football around Europe and really around the world is coming back one day at a time. So let's go ahead and get talking about it. I'm excited. Absolutely. Right. Before we do, let's do the social media bits first. Others will be talking to the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. If you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Also, if you like it, leave a review so you move up the league table. Also, if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Audio Boom. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. Also, a big shout to our content partners at lastwordonfootball.com. Be sure to check out the excellent written work by Drew, also the work that I do once you listen to this podcast. Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's go to Germany again, as normal, with the third segment in Das Real Fußballcast. This time last week, we had a quick look ahead to the Classica, and although it didn't promise as many goals as we hoped, Cole, it was an incredible one which won the game. Yeah, it was a pretty neat finish, wasn't it? Um, and, and the kind of goal that will be on a highlight reel for a long time to come. Um, as you say, the game kind of didn't quite live up to the kind of hype that we gave it, didn't we? You know, we said there'd be goals galore and, and, and that. And it, it didn't quite live up to that. Um, but it was still a good game. Um, probably the first big game we've seen and, and lots of attention on it. And unfortunately, you know, for, for my point of view, Bayern nicked that win, which I think kind of almost puts them within touching distance now of getting the title. I can't see, I can't really see anyone else being able to stop them um, rolling on and getting it. Uh, and again, just another reminder that Dortmund just remind me so much of Spurs. Um, because again, when that big game comes around and there's a real game where something's on the line, Again, they just fall short. Drew, at the same time, we spoke about Jaden Sancho's probable start. That didn't materialise either, so we all looked a bit silly on that front also. However, at the weekend, he showed how deadly he can be when he does start. So how much of a miss would that have been for the black and yellow last Tuesday? You know, honestly, I didn't think it was that big of a miss. And the reason I say that is because when he came on as a substitute against Bayern, Jaden Sancho did not look good. He was slow. He was lethargic. He didn't really make an impact on the game. And so 
I actually don't think Lucien Favre got it wrong, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because when he did come in, he did not play well at all. I mean, I thought against Bayern, Sancho didn't look fit, and right, that was the reason that he hadn't started up to the uh, up to that point since the restart was uh, injuries had kind of been uh, lingering for a while, and so they had said he couldn't go 90 minutes. And in that match against Bayern, he certainly looked, he looked like he couldn't even go 30 minutes. And so I actually don't blame Lucien Favre for getting it wrong or anything like that. I thought Bayern did a very good job defensively, as they always do, right? They're a very, very good side. Um, and Dortmund, as we've seen on so many occasions, they don't show up in the biggest of moments. And look, I'll, I'll put my hand up and say that I keep you know, falling into their trap. Every time Dortmund go into a big game, I think, you know what, this time they're going to pull it off. And they simply don't. And so, once again, Jaden Sancho not playing. This weekend he was great, and I'm sure we can uh, talk about his performance and, and Dortmund's against Paderborn. But against Bayern, Sancho did not look 100%. And so I actually don't blame Lucien Favre that much for not starting him. It may seem now, looking back on it, that it was a big miss. But at the time, he did not impact the game whatsoever. I guess in terms of people who need to rise up to the occasion, Cole, Maybe, or arguably, Erling Haaland was the one who didn't. I know he went off injured after 72 minutes, but a blank there, that's really the kind of game where he needs to step up and show the world how good he is to get that monkey off Dortmund's back and actually crack by Munich. Yeah, it, it's very, it, it doesn't take long, does it, before sort of names of like flat track bully and things like that come around, is it, where, you know, people are very quick to kind of aim those sorts of comments at players like that if they don't produce it on the big stage and in the big games. Um, I just think it was one of them games, like as we say, Dortmund just didn't really turn up, whether it was the occasion or the importance of the game that got the better of them. I don't think anyone knows. It's something as Spurs fans, we've tried to figure out what it is that that happens when all of a sudden there's that bit of pressure on a game. Um, They just, too many players just didn't have a, a good day at the office. But I think this is going to be one of the things we'll see more and more as football gets going again, isn't it? That some teams and certain players will take a little bit longer to get fully back in their stride. Um, And the Bundesliga has showed us that, you know, form and kind of reputation so far isn't really being adhered to other than a team like Bayern. Drew, I guess the big question to come out of that game was whether Dortmund should have had a penalty from Jerome Boateng's apparent handball, because when you compare that to the Dortmund penalty, which they gave away against Paderborn days later, there wasn't a great deal of difference, was there? No, not at all. And with Boateng, it was 100% a penalty, right? When he slipped in the box and the shot came in, he purposely stuck his arm out and the ball clipped his arm and went out for a corner. Now, Dortmund sprinted to the corner to take it quickly. Nobody from the 11 on, on the pitch protested. Lucien Favre, the manager, wasn't in the fourth official's ear, so nobody on Dortmund's side even saw it. So in that re- in that regard, I kind of understand why the ref let everything play on. I mean, if if you're the team that is, you know, potentially aggrieved essentially and you didn't notice it and you don't even feel that there was a mistaken call by the or a lack thereof by the referee, then what's the point in going back and changing it? Now, of course, we live in a world of VAR, and VAR is supposed to correct these things. Um, but yes, this was 100% a penalty from Boateng. It should have been given. 
and that would have given Dortmund the opportunity um, to to score because their their finishing in this match against Bayern was atrocious. I mean, from from the very get go, uh, I remember I want to say it was in the first five or six minutes. Erling Holland had an attempt on goal, and he just very meekly shot, I guess, if that's the way, right way to say it, at um, at Manuel Neuer. I believe it was Dortmund. Or, I'm sorry, uh, I believe it was Holland. And so Dortmund weren't good finishing on the day. This penalty would have really given them their best opportunity to draw level and really the only opportunity that they would have had to convert and put some pressure on Bayern. So this was a huge missed one for the referee. And then, of course, for, for Dortmund, it hurt them in a, in a horrendous fashion. And then they ended up dropping three points, and now they're out of the title race. So this was a huge missed call, I think, in the match and in the the race to win the Bundesliga title. Carl, you mentioned that with Bayern's win, there is no sort of title race anymore. It's all but one. It might be a moot point in terms of European football, but if you had to pick a Champions League favourite right now, would that team be Bayern Munich? I think they'd definitely be up there, wouldn't they? Because, you know, as you say, that they're strong defensively. They've got some real good pace going forward. Um, in Lewandowski, obviously, you've got some goals. Um, so, yeah, you would have to say you wouldn't fancy getting drawn against them because they they have got the ability to take anyone apart. Um, so, yeah, you would put them, I would say, definitely within the top three for a shout of winning that. I guess the only problem or issue they would have is when the competition comes to an end because if Germany sort of finishes their season in June because they've started earlier then Bayern won't be as hot you know they've sort of had all that momentum and it's put in a box and they've got to try and go again to win a Champions League so I guess it's all about timing um, which might play into the hands of a Premier League club or La Liga club but of course it's all the great unknown because you don't even know the Champions League is going to come to a conclusion but if you're putting your money on it right now I don't think you go much further than Bayern that said Drew with the Bundesliga crown pretty much on Bayern's head once again the race for spots two to five now looks really interesting. So your boys, RB Leipzig, completed the weekend top five set in terms of all winning. Do you want to talk us through that one? Yeah, so, uh, yeah. well, this was actually yesterday on Monday. Leipzig went into Cologne and won 4-2. And this was a huge win. It was actually, I think, one of the most entertaining games to watch, especially in the second half, when they kind of ping-pong back and forth between goals uh, from each side. I thought Leipzig here... This was a very classic, uh, you know, Leipzigian win. Is is that a word? Yeah, that's a word. But that. <laughs> they were, they were uh, a little bit slow to start. They went down early, but then they started to pick it up. Counterattacking, of course. I think pass of the season from Peter Gulashi caught a free kick in his hands. Timo Werner at the beginning of the second half cue his sprint for the counter. Gulashi blasted it downfield, and sure enough. Werner was one-on-one with the keeper and slotted at home. This was actually a really fun game to watch. And I think the thing with Leipzig here is, like you mentioned, the race for the top four is on fire right now. Going into going into their game, Leverkusen and Mönchengladbach had already won, putting the pressure on Leipzig because entering the match, they were out of the top four. Now with the win, they've leapfrogged both and they're back into it. So I think right now you're seeing them be able to handle the pressure of course, this was a road game, so who knows what's going to happen when they finally uh, have to play at home again next weekend. Uh, I believe they're hosting Paderborn, I want to say is who it is. Um, or, yeah. But Leipzig right now, I think they're handling the pressure well. They had their attack on fire. Werner, of course. Christian and Cuckoo was great. And Angelino, Man City Loney at Leipzig, he was fantastic as well down the left flank, wreaking havoc the entire match. So I thought Leipzig looked very, very solid in this match. 
And each week they're getting better and better. And so my confidence in them is growing that they're going to be able to hold on to a top four spot because it is a very intense race right now. Well, if we look at my boys, Bayer Bayer Leverkusen, very quickly, they won on Friday night. Kai Havertz again, so that's five goals in four matches since the restart. Now, there's talk that he'll go to Bayern Munich in the summer, which will only strengthen their hand as champions. You know, it just never ends. Not only that, but Bayer Leverkusen also playing Bayern Munich this weekend. Now, with them level on points with Rich and Gladbach, the fact that Leverkusen lost to Wolfsburg a week or so ago, that could be really important in the race of the top four. And it might be the thing that ultimately cost them because you look at Bayern Munich at the moment and you can't really see how Leverkusen are going to get any points, especially, Cole, when you look at the way that Bayern played at the weekend because... They won 5-0, Lewandowski on fire once again, and it's only the fact that Hans-Dieter Flicks decided just to put the brakes on after about 55 minutes. That had the potential to get very ugly at the Allianz Arena. Yeah, that, that, that could have been a cricket score by the end, wasn't it? You know, you just get the impression Bayern kind of thought, listen, hey, we, we've got other games to come. Um, so let's that, just take the, you know, take the foot off the pedal, ease off, this is done. Uh, we save ourselves for next week. Um, and they'll go again. You can't see no one stopping them. You know, say that they're too strong. They're too good. And they are the one side where you don't think, you know, that they've probably got enough quality where even if they're not at their best or some players are still trying to get fully up to speed, they'll still be able to beat anyone who they play with, especially while we've got that, you know, while the crowds are not there, you know, there's a, te- there's a tight match, you know, like the one at Dortmund, you know, if you'd had the Dortmund crowd, would that have made a difference? No one would know. Um, but sometimes it might be that those tight matches that that crowd being there could make a difference. But, you know, without that, I don't see no one being able to put the brakes on, on Bayern at all. And if you go to the other big win of the weekend, that was Dortmund, Drew. There was a sense of a bit of a De Classica hangover in the first half against Paderborn. You know, Paderborn, a really poor team in the division at the bottom. And Dortmund just couldn't really get going. They must have had some amazing team talk at half-time because the second half was completely different. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I actually thought, a very boring first half. Now, you can put that down to Dortmund playing without a centre forward, right? As you mentioned earlier, Erling Haaland is, is out injured. And... You know, that was one of the knocks on Dortmund before they even got him in the first half of the season was they didn't have a, so, a center forward. They didn't have a focal point. You know, they put Mario Goetze there, maybe Marco Royce, uh, Paco Alcacer, who, who's now gone. Um, and so they were trying to play with, you know, a fluid front three without a center forward. And it was a bit of a challenge for them at times. And then you saw that happen in this game. Of course, eventually... Playing Paderborn, who's dead last in the Bundesliga, Dortmund was going to end up destroying him. And so they 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 banged in six in the second half. Paderborn got one as well from a, from a penalty. Um, but Jaden Sancho with the hat trick. Obviously, Dortmund, they looked better in the second half. And I'm sure Lucien Favre was laying into them at halftime. Half German, half French. Who knows? Maybe some English was in there as well for, uh, for the guys like Gio Reyna that, that speak English. But Dortmund... Eventually, they were going to be able to to claw their way past Paderborn, and they did it in a big way. I don't think you can take too much from this match because, again, that first 45 minutes, they weren't able to figure it out. The second 45, while they did, I, I think a lot of it also has to come down to they're just a far superior team than Paderborn. So in terms of Jaden Sancho being back in form, maybe, but he did it against, you know, one of the worst uh, or the worst opposition in the league. You know, they did it without Erling Holland. 
again, they did it against a very bad side defensively that was now getting tired legs. So I'm not putting too much stock into Dortmund's what ended up being a blowout win over Paderborn. Yeah, I wouldn't read too much into it. It's the kind of game that it just needed that one goal, and then once that happened, the opposition's defence would collapse, and that's exactly what happened. But like you say, sort of, you can't then triumph for an amazing 6-0 win, because it wasn't really. The first 45 minutes was Dower, and the second 45 minutes was nothing more than a procession. Talking of Dower, Cole, Schalke. Now, since the restart, David Wagner has had an absolute nightmare. Four straight losses. If you take out the sort of hiatus as well, that's no win either side in 11 league matches. Things looking very bleak for his long-term employment status at the Veltins Arena. Yeah, I have to say, you know, as you say, you take out the break we've had as well, and they were playing pretty poor, poorly, you know, in that first game back against Dortmund, weren't they? You know, we kind of said, like, wow, you know, this, this looked like a side that's had a good break. Um, and you don't see things improving. And I think, you know, it, it hasn't quite worked for him as it, you know, left Huddersfield and kind of left having done really well with them. And you thought this could be a guy to keep watching because he could go on to better things. But unfortunately, this one, this project is kind of stalling. And as you say, Dan, I, I don't think if those results kind of continue and especially the performances, because the performances are really, really poor. And, and if those sort of performances continue, then you do have to look and say we need to make a change. And as we know in football, when a change needs to be made, then it's normally the manager that goes first. And you try and get that new bounce by bringing someone else in. So I don't think he's got too long if he can't turn things around quite quickly there. And talking of change, a new manager bounce, that's exactly what's happened at Hertha Berlin. So, Drew, they are really reaping the rewards under Bruno Labbadia. 10 points from 12, which includes a draw at RB Leipzig, arguably the most impressive of the four performances since the restart. All of a sudden, a relegation battle two months ago has just turned into a potential Europa League conversation. Yeah, what I love about Hertha under their new manager is they're playing a completely different style of football. If you watch a lot of their games before the restart, or I mean, well, even before Labadia came in, is it's a lot of bunker down, we're in a relegation fight, you know, d don't don't be too crazy. Let's just get some draws here. Let's get let's salvage as many points as we can. Now if you look at them, they're a lot more open, a lot more expansive, a lot more free flowing and I think that's the key to why they've been able to to get back into mid-table and maybe even get into that fight for the Europa League. I mean, a player that I have really been impressed with, especially since the restart, is uh, Mateus Cunha, the Brazilian. Now, he wasn't able to play uh, in their win over Augsburg, but I think he's done a fantastic job uh, in the last few matches. And he only just joined them in January. And so him playing as a number 10, being that creative force who can also score... I think he's done a fantastic job, and he's been someone in that engine room for Hertha that has helped them kind of change their style of play and be successful at it uh, under the new manager. So for Hertha, I have a lot of confidence in them. I like what I've been seeing with them. And also, I think they have a, a kind of tough schedule to, uh, to see out the rest of the season. They have Dortmund, um, Mönchengladbach, Leverkusen. However, with the way they're playing... I wouldn't be surprised to see them steal some more points and still finish very, very comfortable mid-table. Yeah, I think if you look at the trajectory between them and Schalke, you can see those two sort of meeting in the middle and change direction very soon. I think, you know, even with Dortmund coming up this weekend, it wouldn't be the biggest surprise with the form they're in if they managed to snatch a point a la the way they did against Leipzig a few weeks ago. But certainly things are happening in the German capital. 
Things are also happening around Europe. It seems the big five, in inverted commas, are ready to join football's party again. That is, with the exception of Ligue 1. So, Carl, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but did the French government perhaps wave the white flag just a little too early this time? I guess, yeah, as you say, Dan, isn't it? Hindsight's a, a wonderful thing. Um, and who knows there, you know, I think at the time when they did it, you know, people were kind of applauding them and saying, yes, this is the right move and kind of trying to encourage other leagues around the world to do exactly the same thing. Um, unfortunately, it looks like, you know, I say we knew at that point in time, you know, even just the space of a couple of days was a long time and things were changing so much, you know, hourly. Um, so there is a, you could say, should they have just kind of like waited a little bit longer and gave, give it another few weeks or months? Um, but they felt they've done what's right for them. So I think all you can do is just applaud them. They probably are looking back on it now saying, oh, you know, damn, we, we could only go back in time. But you can't undo the past. They're probably still comfortable with their decision. Um, but yeah, it, it will be a shame for them. Um, and they probably do wish they hung on. But at that time, I think it was the right call. Drew, when you consider the potential cost involved that Liga will have to pay both Canal Plus and BE in sports for the lack of competitive TV action, how costly will that decision be? Or is it, again, just it's too easy to say that now because of the way that things have developed and back two, three months ago, smarter and more personal decisions had to be made? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you and, and Carl that it's easy to say now that, you know, in hindsight, they should have done this, should have done that. Um but actually, if you want to bring up the TV deal, I, it's probably more in their benefit for League Un that they they stopped early because they have a new TV deal that starts next season, and so I think that's part and and it's going it's practically doubling in the amount of revenue that the league is going to get, and so I think that's probably a reason that they were like, well, if we cancel now, we're not going to push back next year's new TV deal. It's easier to refund the amount of money that we have to right now and move on and get into a new contract that's going to pay us twice as much. So on that front, um, now, I, I don't think that was the primary reason that League Un canceled so quickly and early. Did it play into it? Yeah, probably a little bit. But when it comes to TV uh, and the money that they'd have to refund now, I think it actually works in their favor to have ended it early so they can get going with that new TV contract. Um, I do think they they did this a little bit prematurely, and it's not because in hindsight, you know, I've been saying since the beginning that I want to see football come back. I want to see these leagues come back as soon as possible. And especially as, you know, the information and the data and the research and what we're learning about the coronavirus, we're continuing to get better and better numbers. And still, you saw League One. You saw in the Netherlands. You saw in these different countries where they cut everything off so quickly. And even then, I said, I don't think you need to do that. I think we're going to be all right. Um, and so, yes, in hindsight, we can see that for sure as the other leagues are coming back. But even then, I, I don't think it was the right decision because I think they jumped the gun and wanted to try and show, you know, oh look, we're taking action more for the sake of taking action as opposed to sitting down and kind of rationally assessing the situation and trying to find out what was best. Like Carl mentioned, at the time, and, and even still now, to a certain degree, you know, things are changing by the hour. And, you know, trying to make a decision for the next six months when data changes every 60 minutes, that to me just doesn't really mesh very well. And so I think League Un, you know, they put their foot in their mouth and they're probably going to have to, 
you know, just just uh, stick with it. They're going to have to kind of live with the decision that they made, even if it's going to hurt them kind of long term. Yes, a very good point you raised about the TV deal, because that's exactly the scenario that Scotland found themselves in, in that they've got a, you know, compared to their old deal, a bumper deal in inverted commas coming. So there's no point them trying to delay matters and eat into that deal. Let's fold it quickly, then get the new money in. So I can sort of see the exact logic taking place in France. But as you say, you know, you're trying to make a decision which lasts the summer and then you get new information a week later and so on and so forth. So you sort of, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't really. With that in mind, Cole, obviously PSG are champions, surprise to no one. Lyon aren't really taking this line down. Also the two relegated clubs, which I think off the top of my head are Amiens and Toulouse. Apologies if they're not. They're pressing for it to be restarted. Is there any hope or just, you know, do they just have to accept it now? No, I think now nah, I, I can't see that league going back on that because, you know, it's kind of massive egg on the face, isn't it? Um, and that there's probably been lots of work behind the scene just to tie everything up there. Um, I think if I remember rightly in that league, pretty much all the teams had played 28 games. Um, so so for me, that was the biggest thing when we were talking about voiding leagues, you know, was the difference with things like the Premier League and that. If you had the majority of your teams had all played the same games, and I think the only two teams that had played one less game were PSG and the side in, in mid-table position. Um, now, for me at that point, I can quite happily sit there and go, listen, you've played 28 games and everyone around you has also played 28 games. So you're where you are because at that point, after 28 games, you didn't have enough points to keep you out of the relegation zone. You weren't. You know, you weren't like a couple of games down where, you know, you maybe could have clawed it back. We stopped it. Everyone had played 28. You you fell into the bottom three at that point. So I don't really you know. For me, it's a bit like, well, you know, you should have put more effort into getting yourselves out of the bottom three during the course of a season. Um, and I don't really think they can moan too much. For me, that's pretty fair. If you look at the Premier League at a certain point, if we'd voided it and say someone like Villa had gone down and they had a game in hand on the team above them and were only one point behind, then that for me is a problem where you can say, well, yeah, hold on, that that isn't a fair situation because if they win that game, they're above them and they're not down. So that they're the differences for me in that circumstance. Yeah, I'd have to agree. If you have to freeze things or void it or whatever terminology you want to use, as long as everyone plays the same games, be that short of the designated number that you started with, then at least that's more acceptable. If you've got teams changing positions on games that haven't been played, on the, you know, we might have got three points and all that, it just creates so much mess and confusion. Is it fair? Integrity? All that nonsense. So I think the way that France have dealt with it is probably for the best and it might have cost them a little bit, but they'll make that money back quite handsomely in the years to come. So I think, you know, on balance, they've done the right thing. But Drew, in terms of leagues... They want to get going again. It seems that June 20th is going to be the real sweet spot because you've got La Liga, Serie A, Premier League, Bundesliga, EFL Championship all set for action on that day. We're nearly there now. Yes, and I couldn't be happier. This has obviously taken a lot longer than, than I wanted and probably you guys as well and a lot of other people. But I'm glad that finally we are getting football back. You know, when, when everything shut down originally and everyone said – oh, we must maintain the integrity of the league and, and all these different things. I think right now it's very clear that, you know, the, quote, integrity of the league is kind of out the window. And, you know, I was in favor of of either just ending the season or doing a playoff or something like that. We didn't have to see every game played out at all costs or whatever. But since that's the situation that we're in now, 
Absolutely. I couldn't be more excited. You know, the, I think the, the Bundesliga has, you know, filled the void definitely for, for myself and I think a lot of other people. Um, and the Premier League is going to be doing the same. La Liga, Serie A. I think all of these leagues coming back together or coming back at roughly the same time is fantastic. And they're all kind of doing it in their own ways, which I think is fantastic, right? If you look at the Premier League, how they're going to have every game in its own dedicated window throughout the weekend, or for the most part, they're going to be doing that, right? The two games in hand, they're playing that before so that everyone is on equal footing. If you look at La Liga, they're going to be playing games every single day uh, with a minimum of 72 hours in between matches for, for clubs, but they're doing it late at night when they're going to be, you know, kind of Spanish culture. People are up late and out late. And so they're going to be doing that so people can watch. And it's more like tournament style, right? Serie A has so many more games to to fill in. So they're going to really have to uh, be or they're going to be pressed for time a lot. Um, each country is doing it a little bit differently that fits their situation. And I like that because a lot of times a one size fits all you know, policy doesn't work. And so with all these leagues coming back, they've done it cautiously. They're getting their teams back up and training now right in the Premier League. They're in full contact training now. So I think this is great. I think this is going to be a fantastic uh, thing for the leagues themselves, for for fans, for everyone involved that these leagues are coming back. So I couldn't be happier. Yeah, that certain date was meant to be the day I was in Bilbao watching the Euros. But with all that football that's coming back, it's probably not the worst alternative either. The Premier League should be playing on that day, Cole. And a bit of news has broken today that Ralph Harsenhutl signed a four-year deal with Southampton. So when you consider that he was in charge for that 9-0 defeat to Leicester months ago, that's quite the turnaround, isn't it? Yeah, I think we said after that after that game, didn't we? You know, I think we had a couple of weeks run where we just said, well, the next game we'll probably see him gone. Um, and I think that started our little campaign where we was kind of fighting for the little man and making sure they picked up three points every <laughs> week. Um, you know, but... <laughs> He did have a brilliant turnaround there, didn't they? They were, they started to play some really good football, getting some good results. Um, and you can see that, obviously, you know, they now believe they've got a kind of long-term future with him at the helm. Um, and obviously, it will just remain to be seen whether this break has done them, you know, done them any favours, whether it kind of knocks them out of sync and suddenly when they come back, they'll struggle. Um, but I, I'm guessing as well that in the current climate, it probably makes sem- sense for them to stick with a man they know. If you, th- you know, we're thinking like we are that you know transfers are not going to be too high on the agenda, and many clubs won't be doing business. Then why bring someone in who doesn't really know those players that well? He has obviously managed to get something good out of them. So you've got to stick with him and see how it goes. So we just have to take our hats off to him and say, well done, because it would have been easy to kind of just accept what was coming your way after that 9-0 win and the way they were playing. Drew, when you look at Southampton, what can they realistically do in the future? Because bar us using them as a template for being middle of the road, you know, we're sort of like, oh, would you want to watch an average Southampton game, etc.? Can they ever threaten to break the glass ceiling or is it just being a top flight club enough for Southampton? I think right now with with the actions they take, they're comfortable being just in the Premier League consistently. And the reason I say that is how many players have they sold to to Liverpool or, you know, I mean, take Gareth Bale to Spurs, right? You know, they they let Mercio Pochettino go. And that's fine. You know, some clubs have to be feeder clubs. Some clubs have to be selling clubs. That's okay. And it seems as if they are comfortable with that. If they're going to, you know, try and flip players and and make profit off of them, 
that's fine. But that, to me, is not an aspiration for making it to the top four. And so with Ralph Hasenhutl, I think he's going to be going through kind of the same thing. Um, I mean, think about this. Every manager's contract, no matter if it's four years, ten years, it's really only six months at a time, honestly. It's game by game for, for the most part. But with Southampton, they're not really a team, at least there's no indication of it in the past few years, that they are really pushing to get into the top half, to fight for the Europa League or anything. They may have the odd year where where they get close or, or something like that. But the way they operate as a club, it is we are a club that's just going to sit in the Premier League, hopefully, uh, comfortably. And every year we're going to sell one or two, some of our best players, and we're going to use that money to go buy some underrated or maybe undervalued players throughout Europe and bring them in. Saudi Almane is another perfect example, you know. So for Southampton, they may say, and I would hope they do tell their fans, that, you know, they are, of course, striving to be the best. They want to get into mid-table and then eventually into the Europa League. But there's no actions that they're taking that actually show that. They are a club that is simply comfortable having their feet up in the Premier League and between, you know, 12 and 15. And for them, that's just fine. At the same time, Cole, that's not to say they've got a lack of ambition, but with every benefactor that comes in, takes over a club, Wolves, as an example, you can also add Newcastle to that list potentially. The task just gets even harder for the Saints, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, as as you say, as each season comes and we start seeing new owners coming in, um, you know, look at Sheffield United as well. Look, look at you know how they performed in their first season in the Premier League. You know, Southampton probably didn't take into account that Sheffield United would have that sort of season. You know, they probably thought they'd be with them in and around the kind of relegation zone or mid-table. Um, so as each season comes and you know, people start get more money. Each club's now have got a lot more finances. I think Southampton will just have to unfortunately accept that they are going to be one of those clubs that if they can find those hidden gems, they may just find they get a season where they can creep into fifth or sixth, something like that, and get Europa League football. The problem they'll always have is that if they buy an unknown young young player and he goes and has a wonder season where, you know, say they buy a striker, he goes and has a wonder season, he gets 25, 30 goals, then you know what's going to happen. The big fish are circling, they get a scent of blood, that they can attract that young man with finances and obviously the prospect of winning things. So they're never going to be able to keep hold of their best players while while they're doing what they do. So it's just a vicious cycle. Um, and unless they suddenly get a benefactor who can come in and start splashing, you know, ridiculous amounts of money around, I don't really see a point where that changes. Um, the problem they'll have is if they can't find these hidden gems and they can't bring these players through that, that do what the likes of Mane, Bow and all that did, then they will have seasons where they struggle and possibly flirt with relegation, which then causes them another headache altogether. And Drew, going back to Newcastle, we spoke a fortnight ago about whether this takeover will happen. Do you think it's still just in the in-tray of the Premier League desk? Or, you know, I guess with the backlog of project restart needs to be cleared first... Or is it a case of the longer this goes on, the more and more concerns that Magpies fans will actually have? Well, I think there are going to be more and more concerns, and I think there should be because uh, just maybe a, a week or two ago, I, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many people remember this, but one of the one of the complaints about the potential new ownership group from Saudi Arabia is that they also were funding a um, a TV station. In Saudi Arabia, I believe it's called Be Out Q. 
That's right. And yeah. they were they were accused of you know pirating games illegally from different countries and going around you know the official broadcasters. And the I believe it was the World Trade Organization, the WTO, uh, just announced uh, about a week or two ago that this is true that they have been pirating uh, games. They have been pirating you know the or I guess going around the the official broadcasters. And with that, as the TV station is owned by the Saudi Arabian government, that would then possibly disqualify them from being able to pass the owners and directors test in the Premier League, right? Because part of it is, even if you haven't been convicted of a crime, if you would have been convicted of the crime in the UK, you know, and, and I'm not trying to get conspiracy theory on you, but, you know, if, if, if you're the king or, or the leader of a country, you're probably not going to have too many crimes you know, against yourself, you know, convicted in, in a court of law. Um, but if that would have been the case in the UK, then you you don't qualify. And so I think that might be an issue they're running into, right? Because all of the news about the takeover has basically ceased to exist. I don't know if the Premier League is doing that on purpose. I don't know if there just is nothing new to talk about. And they and Newcastle and the potential owners haven't said anything. But right now, there is no news about it, and I think this is a worrying sign for the potential takeover because when all the news was coming out, it was it was updates every day, twice a day, and this was still during the coronavirus shutdown, and we're still in that right now. I would say we probably have more you know, uh, clar- clarity in terms of direction and what's happening next, and yet all the news – in terms of Project Restart – but then when the news about the Saudi takeover now is gone, you would think that right now there'd be plenty of news as well because not everyone has to focus on how do we get Project Restart up and running. That's already been taken care of for the most part. So I think this is a worrying sign, and I think it may be the Premier League trying to figure out what are we going to do with this? Have they not qualified essentially, but are we still going to try and find a way to have them pass the owners and directors test? Is the Saudi Arabian ownership or potential ownership group trying to find a way or, or backroom deals with the Premier League. Again, I'm not trying to sound, you know, conspiracy theory or, or anything like that, but I think that is something to consider right now because all of the news is gone. And if you're a Newcastle fan, I do think you have to be a little bit worried about this because it, it seems to me like things are not adding up right now like they were in the beginning when all the news was coming out about the potential takeover. Well, exactly, because if you think there's a, a news vacuum at the moment, all that Premier League restart talk has pretty much dissipated. There's little bits here and there, but this should be the space where Newcastle are filling it and the takeover is just about to be greenlit. And that sort of silence is deafening, really. And that, I think, as a Newcastle fan, is going to be quite the concern. But in terms of Project Restart itself, Cole, it seems like all the hurdles are nearly cleared. There's a couple, and one of them does seem like neutral venues. Now, it's only going to be from a... Liverpool away point of view when you consider that they are going to win a title at some point so I guess with any potential party and the dampening that needs to be required these are the measures that will have to be put in place yeah I, to be honest again it still doesn't sit right with me that you know Liverpool can play their home games but when it comes to their away fixtures that they possibly go and play at a neutral venue I, I don't see how that's right if, if you've got a team you're concerned about then surely they play all their games at neutral venues and, and not just select which ones they want to do. Um, so that really doesn't sit right with me. You know, I've no problem. We all know Liverpool are going to win the title. And, and not being funny, they've been the best team. They deserve to win the title. But I, I just 
it, that just doesn't sit right with me. You know, it, do they really think as well that when these neutral venues are kind of like known about, they do they still think those fans won't travel to where those games are? Um, because you know that's pie in the sky. You know, once supporters find out where this game's going to take place, those hardcore that want to go, they'll go wherever they they want to go. You know, let's face it, they'll all take the Cummins approach, won't they? And they'll all be in their cars or whatever, and and they'll be off. Um, and because they want to be around it, they'll want to be there when they win the title. So. Um, yeah, for me, I, I just get them playing at Anfield. For me as well, then you can police it a little bit even, you know, for me, sure, you can police that even better because you know where people can be coming from. You, you know, you can put things in place to potentially try and stop that. Once you do neutral venues, those people are not going to travel in their team colours. So how do you know where they're coming from and, and sort of processes they'll take? So that doesn't sit right for me. I just think they should be playing at Anfield or the team's ground, who they're playing. If, if I could just add something real yeah, quick sure. to, to Carl. I mean, I think he's right in that neutral venues are, aren't going to stop anybody. If they're intent on going to to celebrate in any way, shape, or form, they're going to do it, first of all. But even beyond that, you know, if, if I can just pull an example from the U.S. right now, is, you know, every state in the U.S. has had different rules about reopening and how many people can get back together or whatever. And in those states that have Florida, Georgia and different ones, there has not been any sort of spike in coronavirus cases, let alone deaths. And so and, and people are going to the beach. People are going to restaurants. People are doing this, that and the other. And, you know, e even this weekend with uh, the protests and some of them which turned into riots here uh, in different cities, you know, there's nobody talking about, oh, you have to stop this because the coronavirus could spread. You know, and, and maybe it's because it's not the most important issue with all of that, but it's been proven so far statistically that reopening has not seen a spike in um, new cases. And so I think if you take that over to to the UK, I think it would probably be the exact same thing. I mean, people are people. Viruses are viruses. So if it's not being a huge problem here, I don't think it would be in the UK. So. I'm not saying that, you know, a million Liverpool supporters should all go outside Anfield. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Plus, I don't think a lot of people would want to. They'd probably just be nervous about it. But I actually don't think neutral venues are even really necessary at this point because if people do mass gather outside, I don't really think it's going to be that uh, big of an issue when it, terms, when it comes to the coronavirus. You know, I, I think people are being precautious as well. They'll probably try and stay a little bit distant as much as they can. They'll probably all have hand sanitizer. They probably won't be high-fiving, you know, random strangers. So I actually don't think neutral venues are necessary because it's not going to stop people. Like Carl said, I agree. But also because when we look at the data right now, you know, mass gather or quote mass gatherings aren't really putting more and more people at risk. And so I think... Liverpool playing at home is going to be okay. I mean, there's a couple countries, I believe it's Hungary and I want to say Poland, they're considering having fans back in stadiums for the remainder of this season. So I, I think there's a lot of good news and, and positivity surrounding the coronavirus. And so these neutral venues, I think, are completely unnecessary. Carl, when we talk about sporting integrity, the fact that there's going to be a cluster of games at neutral venues... Does that damage it more than if you had games at all neutral venues? Because, yes, you could say, well, home advantage is being sacrificed across the land, but at least all things would be equal, although they're different at the same time. The fact that you've now got 
a number of games, say, move to Wembley. How does that fare on the opposition that Liverpool will be playing, especially if, say, they're in a relegation battle? Yeah, for, for me, Dan, I, I completely agree. You know, if we come back and it was all games were going to be at neutral venues, then you can say, well, everyone's in the same boat. But now you're sitting there saying, well, we're going to pick and choose some teams that we think we'll give neutral venues to at certain points. Again, it does just leave the, you know, for me, it leaves it open for people saying, well, that ain't fair, is it? How, how does that work out for them? You know, why shouldn't we get to play out this game at a neutral venue? Um so, yeah, for me, I think they've completely shot themselves in the foot with this. Um, and if it, if it had been all games at neutral venues, then, hey, we're where we are and we deal with it. But this, OK, certain games will be at neutral venues. Again, just doesn't sit right with me. And uh, as Drew's pointed out there, I don't see the need for it. You know, if we think this, if we think we're so safe and everything's going to be OK, there's no need for the neutral venues. And, you know, you just sort out what you need to do. You know, it's clear they're worrying about the fans turning up. But... What? Why does that? Does that only mean that Liverpool fans might travel? Do, do, what about? Do they not think Arsenal fans might travel to a game at the Emirates? I mean, I know they don't most weeks, but you know <laughs> they, they they might still now because they haven't they haven't had no football. Um, but but what's going to stop Spurs fans turning up at the new White Hart Lane? You know, what's going to stop Everton fans wanting to be outside Goodison? So you're either doing it for one reason or you're not. Um, so, yeah, for me, it just doesn't make sense and leaves it more open for saying, well, yeah, the integrity's gone there. And again, you leave yourselves open for me for people being able to complain and possibly look to try and get some sort of justice done for that. Drew, staying on a domestic level, we mentioned the championships returning. That said, there's some Charlton players that aren't training. QPR are unhappy with the decision I think that's putting it lightly so there is some dissension is that voice or collective voice going to be loud enough to halt the June 23 start or is this going to show that the show will eventually go on no this show is definitely going on you know QPR Charlton as a as clubs or even individual players or execs or whoever they can complain all they want but they're number one they're just going to be outvoted Number two, I think if you look at a majority of people, if you were to poll them, you know, maybe anonymously, I think they would agree that it's okay to go back. You know, I think one thing that you're seeing is only the negativity, you know, highlighted in the media. If it's individuals at QPR or at uh, Charlton, if Troy Deeney, Sergio Aguero, you know, you don't see the majority of players who do want to go back. You know, everything is about the the one and only person who's scared. They're focusing on outliers as opposed to the majority which i think is the real story and so i don't think no matter how loud they they scream or vehemently they are against this the championship is going to restart and and i think that's a good thing if you are an individual player um in the championship or you know premier league or wherever if you don't want to play that's okay i don't think you should get paid in the same way you know if i don't go to my job i don't get paid um, I'm not going to think anything less of you. Now, I don't agree. If I was a player, I would go play. You know, me here in the U.S., you know, I, I, I lost my job when the coronavirus started, and I picked up a new one, you know, thankfully, and I've been out, you know, facing customers for the past two months or whatever it's been during all of this. So, you know, I, I'm not just criticizing players. You know, I'm I'm living that which I tell them to do. And the same thing, if there are individual players who don't want to play, I, I get it. If they have situations at home, if they have, you know, older parents who live with them or if they have young children with with, you know, possible health issues, I, I get it. You don't have to play. But I don't think that those individual outliers 
should now then, you know, take everything away from the majority that don't agree with them. And I don't think those individual outliers should be the ones that are kind of dictating the the policy or or project restart. I think a majority of players want to get back. They're okay with going back. And I think that they should be going back. So I don't agree with QPR or Charlton or any of the players that are kind of, you know, voicing their opinions on this. They can do it. I have no problem with them speaking up and saying they don't want to play. I just simply don't agree with them. And Cole, with the championship getting going, or that being the assumption that we can make here, it does mean that teams will go up, which also means that really the Premier League relegation trapdoor will have to be opened. We can't really envisage a 22-23 team Premier League next season. Teams will be going down whether they like it or not. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's quite right, isn't it? You know, once you're going to start up, then the bottom line is, you know, the rules are there and the bottom three go down and, and the top, you know, top two and then the playoff ones come up. Um, so I, as long as you play all those games, I, no one, in my opinion, can really moan. Like, as you said, the only problem will come if those that have been forced to go to a neutral venue, they may have some grounds to sort of say, well, actually, this wasn't fair. But I don't think none of those teams that are kind of in and around that position are really going to be too affected by that. So, you know, they've got their chance. As we've said before, Dan, this is a nine-game sprint now, isn't it? A nine-game season. So you need to make sure if you're in that trouble zone, you hit the ground running here and you've got nine games to save yourself. Um, and I think as long as all those games are played in the right way, then if, it, if the final ball is kicked and you're one of those three that go down, I don't think you can moan too much. And Drew, to finish off in MLS corner, I believe there's some Orlando-based and player bargaining agreement news for me. Oh, yeah. There is there is a uh, civil war brewing right now between uh, the MLS players and the owners. Um, and just the most recent news, and it's actually going to come to a head tomorrow on Wednesday, is like you mentioned, the players and their union have not been able to agree with the owners on restarting in Orlando or just in general. And the union... I'm sorry, the league sent their final proposal on Sunday. The union has pretty much rejected it. And the league said, you know what? If you don't accept this, this is our best offer. We're going to lock you out. And they have to decide by uh, noon Eastern time in the U.S. uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, June 3rd. And I don't want to see this happen. I think a lockout benefits absolutely nobody. I can actually see both sides of the argument from the players and from the owners, and I understand why each side hasn't agreed. But I do not want to see this happen. I want to see each side be able to figure it out and come to a solution and have the league back playing, whether it's a month-long tournament Orlando, which I actually do like and think is a great idea, or if they're going to delay it a little bit and restart and play you know, half the season from July onward or something like that. But I don't like what's happening here. Um, some of the big talking points and where they're – kind of diverging right now. One of them is pay cuts. Um, MLS, the uh, league right now, is pushing for, I believe it's an 8%, or here it is, 8.75% pay cut. The players and the union are only willing to accept a 7.5% pay cut. When they're that close together, I kind of think both sides, just concede. It's not that big of a deal. A one one plus percent pay difference in what you're willing to take in a reduction That's not a lot. I think both sides are being very, very stubborn on that. Another one, and we've seen this kind of come up in contracts in Europe right now, is force majeure. There is not one in the players' union uh, collective bargaining agreement. 
I understand why the league wants to put it in. I'm not going to go into the dirty details of it, but essentially they're trying to put in a force majeure clause which says they don't have to pay out the players. The CBA is null and void if there's a huge drop in attendance next year. I don't like that because I think, number one, that's not force majeure. Number two, that I think can be used outside of what it's actually intended to be used by the league. So I don't like that. So there are some contentious points here between the two, and I'm really worried that the league is going to lock them out. The last and final thing I'll say about this is whether people like it or not, MLS and the owners in the league, they have all the leverage. They have the money. They can survive a lockout. These owners, millionaires, billionaires, they got plenty of money to last for years without having you know, soccer on the field. Players don't. And yet somehow they're still lev- or they're still negotiating like they have a ton of leverage, and they don't. These players who make maybe a hundred thousand dollars a year, maybe two hundred thousand, you know, I-, I think there's less than ten players in MLS that make a million dollars. Don't don't quote me exactly on the number, but it's not a lot. And so they don't really have money saved up. They can't afford to miss paychecks and things like that. So I think they're the ones that are gonna have to concede more simply because they don't have the leverage. And you may say it's not fair, you know, that the power and difference is there, but that's how life is right now. I really hope in the next 24 hours, the league and the players can come to an agreement and get this solved. I think they're going to look very, very bad in in the court of public opinion, the the owners more so than the players, um, for for squabbling over money. And I think if they refuse to play and and there's a lockout, I think any sort of momentum that MLS has built in the past few or in the past 25 years, right? But really the past few years, I think they're going to destroy that and they are going to really recede into not even close to being a major sport in the U.S. So I think this lockout benefits nobody, especially not fans, and I do not want to see this happen at all. That's a fantastic update, Drew. We'll get your opinion next week on the fallout. So if even if I forget to ask you, don't forget to prompt me. We'll, we'll have a review on that. So that's on Tenterhooks. I'm very excited about how that one pans out. That is pretty much the end of this show. We are getting to the end of our filler run of episodes, shall we say. We'll have some actual football to talk about soon in terms of Premier League football. That will be in, I guess, three weeks' time. We'll have a preview show in two weeks' time, I think, as a little treat. Next week, who knows? But I need to do the admin to uh, wrap up this week, which is as simple as thanking my guests. Drew, a pleasure as always. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Yeah, well, thank you for having me, Dan. It was great talking to you and Carl. And I love being able to talk about more than just, you know, coronavirus stuff, this, that, and the other. Football is coming back, and I couldn't be more excited, and it's great talking about it. And I can't wait to see everyone back out on the pitch in a couple weeks. Fantastic. And, Carl, a pleasure as always. Look forward to chatting to you next week. Yeah, I just echo what Drew said there, Dan. You know, it's great to talk all things football and kind of get away from a little bit of misery and that that can be. Um, So, yeah, really looking forward to the restart. And I think, as you say, these shows will just get better and better once football comes back. Yes, Cole, don't worry about that. The shareholders will be delighted in a few weeks' time when we've got some real football to talk about, if you'll pardon the pun. Right, with that out of the way, and with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy, this is The Real Football Cast, and until next time... Goodbye. Sports Social Podcast Network.